We are I. Good afternoon, Bridget. After what? Three months? Has it been three months or two months? Uh, I think three. Three? I know. When you're used to talking yeah. to somebody so routinely, and then it made me realize this morning just like how fast time goes by. Because when we originally talked about you know taking this summer off, it seemed like such a big stretch, and now that it's here, it almost seems like we talked a month ago. I know. I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, thanks for sharing pre-recording your uh, your comments on Prince Edward Island. I'm really excited oh, yeah. to go. And when I'm there next summer, don't forget how close New York is to Prince Edward Island. So it might be our perfect opportunity to be able to meet each other in person for the first time. That's true. That yeah. could be arranged. Maybe we could each go like Prince Edward Island's still pretty far. Is it? See, yeah, I no. say that not knowing I've never been to Eastern Canada or the Eastern United States. So I just presume that they were close how far away are they do you think oh man I drove up there a long time ago and I think it was probably like a 10 hour drive or something like that or eight. Oh, okay so it's a it's yeah. a good full day drive yeah if I remember correctly I could be you know not remembering it right but yeah yeah all right so we talked um very, very, very briefly, I want to go into like food selection, digestion, absorption, in like the most amount of detail that we can. Um, because I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately, and I find that this always happens typically during change of seasons, mm. you know, where you just get in the conversations around food, not necessarily like what I should eat, when I should eat, but you can tell when people's, um, like nutrition habits or nutrition requirements start to change because I feel like we we naturally start to think about food in a little bit different ways and like the things that people crave. Um, I've had an uh, astronomical amount of people say to me in like the last couple of weeks that they're just craving red meat right now, like just craving meat. Um, I don't know if that's the because of like the world I live in is so many people like, you know, are, you know, on more carnivore like diets or heavier meat eating diets, whether the seasons are changing, hunting season is here. All of these things have kind of come into play into this nucleus of conversation. Um, so knowing that let's get into food selection first. You know, I know we're, we're very visual. A lot of food has color to it. A lot of food has smell to it. Like, you know, these are our first sensory perceptions that we get in that, that pulls us into things. However, not all food that's brightly colored and easy to see we should eat. And not all food that we can smell we should eat either just because, you know, we see these things and they actually can't kill us. So it seems like something that's helped us find food through sight and smell is mm -hmm. also not the greatest system because it can lead us down a dangerous path and even to death by using these two senses to help curate our meals for us right and so in terms of like seasonal eating we're going into fall and we're still in late summer and um 
so it's it's like a it's an interesting transition because late summer is so like humid and then with fall what ends up happening is the yang chi in the body or the transformation principle of the body that transforms food and fluids into nutrition and waste it increases and it and it goes deeper it gets stronger it starts to get stronger in the fall so we're naturally gravitating uh, a little bit more toward meat or fatty things um, that begins now and it begins uh, from the from a couple of different perspectives so there's that yang chi perspective where the transformation increases the ability to transform and the ability to transform heavier things. And then um, it increases from the perspective of the microbiome in the gut, which begins to change as the food selection, natural food selection changes, not what's available all year round because we have grocery stores, but what we have evolved to um, naturally eat and drink at the change of season based on how the um, populations of microbes in the gut shift with the environmental shift. And so, yeah, eating more meats, more nuts and seeds, those things are going to start to become more prevalent for people. And and like some people have really strong Agni or digestive fire. So they may be feeling it more than people that have weaker digestive fire. Um, you may not necessarily be craving something right now, but you may be noticing that there's starting to be a change in the digestive principle and that it's um, maybe you're getting a little bit like you're noticing that you're digesting things a little bit better right now um because of of the fact that the digestive fire starts to increase in the fall into the winter so and it's actually interesting you bring that because it is something that i wanted to discuss like right now we're going through a massive influx of temperature variability you know Mm -hmm. like especially here where you know like we're still getting between you know 25 and 30 degrees celsius during the day you know, but at night now we're getting down to, you know, like that 10 to 14 degrees Celsius, Um, you know, so like there's a lot of temperature variability, but what does this do for our digestion or like, like how does this play a role into, you know, like how we eat or the foods that we consume, just knowing like, does it play any role into like our body? Because, you know, like we, we absorb a lot of our environment, you know, by osmosis into our body when there's that kind of influx um, and variability outside, I would assume that our body is going through some kind of variability like that as well. Yeah, and responding to it. Um, and the way that I look at it is because there is so much variability, that means that there's an increase in the air quali- quality, in the quality of wind. It, it, it can be um, something that gets kind of stirred up at the change of every season that happens. So what does that mean? So it can change the nervous system. So what does that mean? It might change someone's motility, for example. It might make people that are prone to having gas and bloating because they have 
uh, due to a vata imbalance, it might make that more pronounced right now. Um, those are just a couple of examples of what could be changing. Yeah. So when we, when we select food and this is, I think this is where we're kind of going to get into the weeds a little bit. I think we go all to start again to the weeds. So when we select food and we eat it, why do we have a sense of taste? Like, like smells I can see, and I know smell is linked to taste. Um, but like, why do we specifically taste things? Like, isn't smell the, the first and foremost indicator whether or not, you know, say like food may be rotten or bad or whether we should be eating it? Like, wouldn't that be our first line of defense? And does taste, is that a part of taste? Like tasting things that we feel like though we shouldn't? Because um, there is a lot of things like, especially bitter foods that are good for you that taste like you shouldn't be eating them. Maybe when you look at it from the grand scheme of things, but they're still, they're not bad and they're actually good. So is, where does taste and smell play the roles and like, which one is? <laughs> that's like a huge question. I know. That's what I said. This is where I'm going to start <laughs> to get into the weeds because I know how loaded that is. So digestion begins in your gut and in your head. If you're thinking about food already, you're changing your physiology and inclining it toward getting ready to eat and digest food. If your body is hungry, obviously you get hunger cues from the body. Some of the things that we crave are direct messages from the microbiome in the gut, basically. So we might be craving something and think that we're craving it like thinking, but really it's the body that's mm -hmm. telling us that it needs that because the colonies in the gut of beneficial microbes, they need certain things to thrive. And so they'll crave them so their populations can grow. Um, and so smell obviously is tied into thought. If something smells yucky it's unappetizing and if it smells good it can make the mouth water it can make up the digestive juices start to um, flourish and move and taste is actually like hugely important to the physiology so I don't know maybe back in the 70s or 80s people were talking about eating all the colors of the rainbow, have all the colors of the rainbow on your plate. That's not necessarily due to the visual. It's, it's also due to the taste. Mm -hmm. And that's because different foods are inclined to have different tastes. So there's bland taste, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and pungent. Now we do classify things that are toxins as being bitter, but like you said, there are many bitter things that are good for us, but we've learned the, what those things are through trial and error and evolution. And, um, but the wiring to associate bitter flavor with poison is still in us. So that's why little kids don't usually gravitate toward things that are bitter. They gravitate toward things that are sweet sweet taste it increases fluids in the body 
So if you're dry, if you're too hot, you're going to most likely crave something sweet. Um, sweet also has the mental and emotional component to it. So car, almost everything has some aspect of sweet to it. And most foods have actually more than one flavor ascribed to them. And so when something has a high degree of sweetness, generates fluids, but it also generates the quality of sweetness within the mind. It's comforting. It's soothing. Think of carbs, you know, bread, pastries, um, things like that. So that's sweet. Bitter is really great for helping to drain excess fluid and, um, and to clear heat. So bitter foods are usually more cooling and they are inhibit dampness formation in the tissues. Um, and they stimulate digestive juices as well. And then um, sour has a has a more heating quality to it and it has like a puckering sort of quality to the tissue so just like you taste something and it's sour you your body tissue also does the same thing like you do when, when you have something super sour um so it kind of rings the tissue out a little bit um even you saying that like my mouth puckers up a little bit it's like as soon as you hear the word sour, it's like the mind prepares the body right. for what might be coming. That's very Yeah, odd. exactly. Um, salty is, um, salty is really tonifying to the kidneys. It's really, you know, it's a mineral. It's, we need sodium in our sodium chloride. Um, and so a lot of times when pe- people are kidney deficient, if they're not sleeping well, if they're burning the candle at both ends, they'll crave more salty foods. Um, and pungent are more like spices, radishes, things that will make energy come up and out, make heat come up and out, increase heat and make you sweat almost. So um, a lot of times we'll give pungent foods to sort of vent out a cold pathogen for example that's just trying to invade the body because it's at a surface level and if you sweat you might be able to sweat it out before it goes deeper into the organs um and then bland is in chinese medicine it's a flavor and and um i mean it's 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 a flavor in ayurveda in the sense that like if somebody is a is a really devout meditator, like a um, yogi in a cave somewhere that's trying to reach enlightenment or clear their chakras or something, it's it's they're better having bland foods. Um, and in the Chinese uh, description of bland, it's 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 better to actually be good with eating bland foods because there's you can that person has more sensitivity and they're getting the taste without going kind of overboard in any taste so when we so we use the the flavors in herbology 
to balance the humors of the body, the doshas, the fluids, the activities in the tissues and the cells. If somebody's too hot, we give a more cooling diet. If somebody's too moist, we give a more drying diet or a damp draining diet. If somebody, um, if somebody needs more moisture, we, we, you know, adjust accordingly. Um, and so all foods in Eastern medicine are classified as cold, warm, or hot. And they're also all classified according to the tastes. So this begs me to bring in this question now in my mind that why are all of them satiating except for sweet? Because like we know, like like you can only eat so much sour stuff before you become satiated. Same thing with bland food, which is the reason why they say like, you know, eating bland food is a great way to calorie control people because like, it's just, there's nothing about you that really wants to eat more bitter food. You can only eat so much salty food. You can only eat so much, but when you go down the avenue of sweet stuff, you know, like whether that's actual just candy or an apple or a peach or a pastry coated in sugar and chocolate, you know, why is it that sweet stuff isn't really satiating or not long-term satiating you know like if you have something that's fatty or salty you know something a little bit more protein dense fatty is sweet fatty is sweet yeah because you metabolize the the lipids into glucose is that why it's classified like that it's classified as sweet though interesting yeah and it can retain other flavors so i have two answers for you about that question based on my experience One is that people do get actually satiated with sweet. I have seen it. (laughs) I've experienced it. Yeah. (laughs) And it almost seems like there's a story to tell behind that. (laughs) You're like, I'll leave it halfway through the bag of candy before I put it aside. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. And then other thing is that um, I think through evolution, we're wired to mostly crave sweet, like breast milk is super sweet. Um, Sweet taste not only generates fluids, but it generates tissue. It's uh, It's an anabolic food. Sweet, sour, salty are all anabolic. They all are, they all work toward building tissue. The others work toward breaking down tissue. And so, I mean, traditionally, historically, throughout time, we've needed more sweet because it was probably a struggle to get enough of it in the diet. Because we're, and you know, the brain uses so much energy and people were much more active, like. And typically goes bad, right? It typically goes bad too, you know, very seasonal you know, typically, you know, like, you know, like it's more spring, early summer, you know, that's where you get your massive concentration. Outside of that, there's just not an abundant of natural sweet sources, you know, unless if you happen to be in a place where there might be apples that are, you know, a later fall, you know, product that have like a sweetness to them, but, you know, or, you know, maybe like some root vegetables, like, like yams or sweet potatoes or, you know, like things along those lines. 
Um, you know, but it just doesn't seem like it's in very much of abundance, you know, very period specific and very high concentration throughout the year. Well, grains are considered sweet. Interesting. Why mm-hmm. is that? Um, because they, they're sweet. They're just not as sweet as cane sugar. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and again, what our classification of sweet would be now in contrast, you know, versus back then, I'm sure that you could probably recognize the sweetness to them, but now like our sweetness scale is so skewed because of how ultra sweet some products are. I see it when I do, when I take people through the seasonal cleanse, because we eliminate all the sugar. I, I still, I tell people, you know, if you're craving some fruit, maybe to have it. I didn't even used to do that. It used to be no sugar on the cleanse. And um, you, a, a lot of people go through flu-like detox symptoms as a result of that because we get addicted to it and we go through withdrawal for three days. The ketogenic and, flu, right? When you start to typically burn more ketones from lack of sugars or available sugars in the body. Because the ketogenic flu is something that a lot of people mistake with actually being sick. Or just like those flu-like yeah, symptoms you get from. Sick. Yeah, yeah, you're not actually sick. And, um, but a lot of people are eating like, you know, candy and pastries and putting honey in their tea and their coffee and having a lot of dairy, which is also sweet. And so and they get sweet with the grains on the cleanse because the the, the cleanse that I do is usually, it's like Ayurvedically inspired so we do eat the whole time. It's just a matter of what we're eating and why we're eating what we're eating. And so it's usually folks go through that time span. We also eliminate alcohol, which is sweet, you know, it has a lot of sugar in it. And then, uh, but it's not necessarily classified as sweet, predominantly anyway. Um, we get, uh, what else do we do? We eliminate alcohol and what else was I thinking? Um, anyway, so there's not, there's not like a lot of direct, you know, full on sweet in the diet during that time, but there's still a balance of a balanced diet. You're still getting fats. You're still getting protein. You're getting all most, mostly all the food groups. Cause we don't do meat. Oh, this is what I was going to say. We eliminate caffeine as well. Because caffeine causes the liver to release glucose into the bloodstream. So we, we do, we eat in order to eliminate any sugar spikes and crashes. And so once people get through that discomfort in the beginning of it, they find that their energy levels are really good. They're very even and consistent throughout the day. And they find that the food that they're eating actually tastes sweet they're not adding a lot of salt. They're not adding a lot of any, I mean, we use spices, but it's not like, um, it's, 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 uh, a cross between sort of spice flavored for the medicinal purposes and bland and people's sensitivity to sweet really increases like things that they used to be able to eat, like eat a whole slice of pie or, a whole like, um, I don't know, like lava cake or something like that, even like a bite of those things can, it's like sickly sweet. Yeah. 
when you're not used to it. And you think we, sorry, go ahead. The nice, I was just going to say, and the other thing is that you can actually develop a sensitivity so that you can feel what a violent act it is to your pancreas to, to binge like white sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I hear that like all the time. And that's the thing I think that it worries me abstractly, um, but not in the present because I actually don't crave anything sweet like the only thing that i crave that might be sweet like the chocolate that eat 90 percent or higher um and the odd time like i would say on average if i had to span it over the the course of a day maybe a quarter to a half tablespoon of honey is what i would eat in equivalent to like something sweet which would only be honey it would just be honey on something or for for a purpose or you know something along those lines um, like I got into uh, playing around with when to have a tablespoon of honey in contrast to my workout, either before, during, or after, you know, just for like that little bit extra, you know, like that fifth gear in a workout from a capacity standpoint. Um, but if we're, if we're experiencing this in our mouth, so through mastication that we get the enzymes in our mouth to be able to break down food and we predominate, a lot of those enzymes will break down carbohydrates first and lipids second. Does that enhance? the ability to be able to taste sweet when the enzymes in our mouth are breaking down those carbohydrates. Is there like an effervescent effect from that that would allow us to experience that sweet a lot more? I'm not sure. Interesting. That thought just popped in my mind. Um, but the, the sensitivity to very sweet things, like, like I was saying, like I'm worried about that in my body because for me, I feel that, that anxious, you know, I don't know what to do with myself. And I realize like how many people are most likely going through their day, you know, overloading their system, but you're so disassociated with why you are feeling like that, yeah. that like you don't understand the symptoms. And when you talk to people who've done like sugar detoxes for a long time, and especially families where, you know, like the parents will say, you know, like we had, you know, like this ice cream after a month, because that's what we said was the family thing after this sugar detox, we're going to have ice cream the massive headaches that came through, the children fighting with each other, everybody getting on each other's nerves, you know, like just all these things that ensue with it, that in today's day and age, we just deal with is like, this is what life is supposed to look like, you know, but not bringing us back to how that can be just something as simple as one massive dose of sugar can cause all these like detrimental effects, you know, but like, people live with that. Like, this is just, it's okay. Like, it's okay to have that brain fog. It's okay to have that dull headache. And it's okay, you know, for people to be irritable or for kids to be getting on each other's nerves or your kids pissing you off or like all these kind of things that we just deem to be now just a natural part for the course of life. Yeah. And maybe a lot of it also is the like overdiagnosis of ADHD in children. And, mm-hmm. and it could be in adults, not that adults are getting overdiagnosed with it. I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, it's been talked about for a long time that children are, and there's a good chance that a lot of that is just their diet. Well, and you know, this for me, from two perspectives on that is that, um, I was talking with somebody a few months ago and, and she was saying to me about how the only reason why she thinks now looking back on it, that she did good in school is because it was about a 25, 30 minute walk to school. So by the time that she got to school, she was, you know, kind of had all that energy mm-hmm. drain of the body was able to focus on school more mm-hmm. and then got home, you know, had to walk back home and got back home and didn't really want to, you know, 
go do like all these other things, but just a little bit more of like the home by work on her homework and all those kind of things, because like, it was just the energy we would expend doing these. And I thought back, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I used to ride my bike to school. Everybody used to walk and you know, like how, you know, in my neighborhood, this school is like two blocks away from my house and most parents won't let their kids walk. And yeah, they might be in elementary school, but we still live in probably one of the safest neighborhoods in BC in one of the safest countries in the world. We're like, you know, we just, we convince ourselves that these terrible things are going to happen if we allow our kids the responsibility to be able to, you know, maybe walk, you know, two or three or four blocks of school. When kids used to be walking 20, 30 minutes down farming roads to be able to get to school, you know, and, and all those kind of things where it's just, you know, I, I think losing a lot of that in our day life is also contributed to these, you know, symptoms of kids having like ADHD and all those, just not, not burning enough and just notoriously living sedentary lifestyles and then having like at my daughter's school she just went into middle school this year my oldest and she's just like we have all of these uh, milk to go things there's one that's coffee flavored there's one that's chocolate one that's strawberry one that's vanilla and they have the rock star energy drinks like a couple of the basic flavors and all these like pops and stuff and oh i'm like God. <laughs> but and, and this is this is an issue here that and there's like the uh parent advisory committees have tried to get these things banned from schools this is like why do we need this stuff and like why do we need to be promoting their kids no matter what age they're at why do they need direct accessibility to that at school because you know you take that further down the line it's like how hard is it for a teacher to be able to teach kids that are amped up maybe say if there's 30 kids in a class say if five of them are amped up on caffeine sitting in the classroom well they don't know how to have the kids don't know how to handle themselves like that they don't see that there's been any change in energy or personality by drinking that thing all right. they know is that you know they don't want to sit there they're bored they want to be yeah. doing something else they're not associating and that is because you just had this massive dump of sugar and caffeine and taurine and b12 and you know yeah. all these other like stimulants and then you expect a teacher to be able to rein all these other kids in. And then you expect those other kids who just want to learn or maybe just didn't, you know, consume any of those products. How do they learn in that environment either? So you see this disruptive cycle that that's what kids, that's what all of our kids are growing up in. So then you go through them having like essentially 18 years of that style of indoctrination of what a workplace, air quotes, may look like. And then that becomes functional reality once they get out of school. Mm. Yeah. Interesting food for thought. Um, peristalsis. Is that the correct? Per- peristalsis. My question here is peristalsis is the, the moving of the stuff that we eat through the body, the muscles, the, the wave-like function pushing everything through. Mm-hmm. The part that I find most fascinating about this is it's one of the strongest muscular systems on our body. And even if we were standing on our head doing a handstand, it's so strong, it can keep pushing that material through our digestive system um, Mm -hmm. with no duress that's associated with it. And outside of eating, we do nothing to be able to strengthen this system, except for just the process of eating itself. We seem to be relatively born with a very strong, you know, muscular system in our digestive tract to be able to push this through. Um, mm-hmm. Does it get worn out? Can we strengthen it? Um, I know that we can 
gain too much elasticity to the tissue, you know, through things like constipation, you know, and then, you know, it becomes overstretched and it will go back. The elasticity will come back, but, you know, maybe that will, you know, kind of prevent the food from moving along and, you know, prevent, you know, maybe like the byproduct and the waste from moving along and being excreted out through the body. Mm. But like, why was this system, how was this system created and how are we naturally born with like this ability to be able to pass through, pass, pass food through a product through the digestive tract for mechanical and chemical digestion? Well, I have a, um, I have somebody I, I talked to in way back in acupuncture school about, we're talking about something else. And she's like, basically we're like, we're, we're like worms, right? We have the opening here, we have the opening there, and the tube that goes down, and it's moving, moving, moving. Yeah. Um, so it, it's that's an interesting perspective. Um, the peristalsis can be inhibited by, like you said, constipation, like chronic constipation, um, and this tissue can get stretched out. And some people actually have a condition called megacolon where it doesn't go back. John and, Wayne had that, I think, when he passed away. There was like tens of pounds of fecal matter in his body, I think I remember reading sure. at one point in time. But like you see that in, I remember like the warning signs of that are like people who have very skinny legs and very distended um, abdominal walls. That can mm-hmm. be like a, a key sign, you know, of uh, of those kind of issues. Yeah, I mean, there there are points people get to where, you know, medical intervention is necessary or even taking um, laxatives, unfortunately, but for the majority, um, I'd say the main issue with peristalsis tends to be the nervous system and the mind overacting on the gut. Um, And so people being in a chronic state of fight or flight, you know, being stressed out, um that is very directly related to ibs ibd and problems with the confusion that can happen in the gut where it's like not regulated it's not functioning optimally um so there is that huge like mind gut connection that's so important because they both influence each other. And then there's a catch 22. So if the mind is overthinking, worrying, anxious, it's telling the gut that the body's not safe. And then the gut's responding accordingly. And then the gut gets out of whack. So then the gut tells the brain that the body's not safe. And then body response, the brain responds to that. And, you know, you know, the whole sequence of events. Um, the other interesting thing, you know, like you said, there's just this kind of innate ability of that tissue to work regardless of our intervention to work well when it's, you know, when we're not intervening in a negative way. And that is part of what in um, yoga and Ayurveda, we talk about apana vayu. So there are different directions that the chi travels in the body or the prana, or the, the forces that work in the body. And one of them is downward. And so there's this particular um, aspect of chi that's called apanavayu, and it's responsible for 
urination, for the menstrual flow, for ejaculation, for defecation, and for childbirth. And, you know, it just kicks on. The body just knows what to do. It's, it is quite amazing. If somebody were to have an issue with peristalsis, of course, there are herbs and acupuncture treatments we could use to help um, accelerate or enhance the aponavayu or get it moving in the right direction. Sometimes it could be moving upward, um, like in the case of some chronic constipations, maybe that's what's happening. But there are um, abdominal exercises that people can actually do. And, and they're used in like belly dancing protocols and in um, like yoga kriyas, which are cleansing practices where you're actually manipulating the muscles that you can move to help churn the intestines around and get stuff working a lot better. But honestly, the peristalsis begins um, to work every single day. Like the minute you like start eating or drinking, everything starts, starts moving. And even before that, even brushing your teeth, that urge that upon a value kicks in when the chi is strongest in the large intestine early in the morning. It's like upon that's upon a value's time in the body clock. That's the large intestines time to activate. Um, and that's the best time to go to the bathroom in the day, because that's when the energetic of the large intestine is heightened to, to do that task. So, and, and something that's really cool too, is that like, um, you've got like the, um, the actual muscular contractions through the gut, but you also have the cilia. So we think of the cilia as these little finger-like tubule projections that come off the walls of the gut that absorb uh, the nutrients and the microvilli and stuff. But the, there, it's also um, helping to move particles through. And it's recommended in Eastern medicine not to eat food right on top of food. So don't like eat and then wait an hour and eat again and then wait an hour. For some people, sometimes that's necessary to kind of graze throughout the day or have many small meals. There are instances where that is recommended. But in general, what happens is if we don't eat food on top of food, then what we do is we give the body a chance to rest enough so that all those little things that are moving inside the small intestine completely clean the small intestine like three or four hours after you eat if if someone were to look inside your body it would look like you never ate like every single particle would be gone they're like little brooms that just clean up the whole tract it's amazing See, and, and that's the thing where you think, I would say the bodybuilding industry and the fitness industry has been notorious for, you know, like promoting heavy, regular eating, you know, every two hours or every three hours all day long, you know, the mm-hmm. constant feeding technique. But then you also realize that the complete opposite is also true for the people who are very sedentary because, you know, like there's always snacks at the office. There's always snacks at home. There's always these things around like where people are constantly grazing on all of these different, you know, sources where, you know, like before, you know, to me, that system is very easy to be able to operate where you wouldn't have that opportunity. And this is where it comes back to me, like growing up on the farm where like you ate breakfast and then you were out 
And especially during, you know, harvest season, which right now you were all day long. And then you came back at the end of the day and you typically had this massive meal, but you really only ever ate two meals or sometimes even just like one and a half meals because it was something quick to get out the door and you just had this big meal at the end of the day but like there's so much natural fasting that happened in life organically um you know where now it's like you know people have to put direct attention to that Mm -hmm. you know but do you think that us not going through that natural process of fasting is what's created some of the more metabolic inflexibility that we have now in metabolic dysfunction because people are just constantly chronically eating and, you know, constantly eating, you know, very carbohydrate rich foods, you know, very like, you know, um, you know, like, like seed oil, dense foods, like all these things that we, we can contribute that may or may not have health concerns. Like, like where do you play metabolic dysfunction in this whole role of this conversation? I think it has a lot to do with it. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, like in the microbiome book, especially I talk about how we're eating, not necessarily what we're eating because it's so important. Yeah. And, and then there's eating disorders. That's a whole other thing that is it's raging in the United States. I don't know about in Canada, but there are a I, lot yeah. of People. I think it's, yeah, raging in first or Western light societies is, I think, where, like, you know, eating disorders are, you know, coming into play. And, you know, where I even see, like, those problems going, which I think is universally, like, widely accepted, is, like, even when you take social media creating eating disorders, but you take these filters and these apps that make your waist skinny or your face skinnier, mm-hmm. like, all these kind of things, where it's just, like, how do you not end up with body dysmorphia? Because that, you know, like no matter what that may look like to you, whether you are, you know, you have big orexia because you're in the gym, you know, whether you have anorexia, you have bulimia, like wherever avenue you take, like, you know, you have this very dysmorphic view of what people should just be looking at, looking like, you know, like, because I always try to say to people, think of how little point in time that we have had mirrors in the grand scheme of when human beings started or, you know, like when our existence started is it's been a very small portion. So like you really would go your entire existence, except for maybe if you happen to look into some water and see this bag like reflection of yourself, you'd have no idea what you looked like. You had an idea what other people looked like, but you had no actual concept of what you looked like. And now we are on the completely opposite side of that spectrum, where people are chronically hypersensitive to like what they look like. One blemish on their face, you know, a little piece of hair, you know, not quite right. Glasses slightly shifted or, you know, like my middle daughter got her ears pierced on the weekend and they're trying to, line it all up perfectly even the one ear though like we all know it like this like nothing's perfectly symmetrical it's asymmetrical it's like i'm like who's looking at her like that you know like right it doesn't have to be perfect nobody's going to look at her like that she's seven years old her friends don't give a shit she doesn't care and the thing is like like who cares like no if somebody this is always my thing is people are analyzing somebody else to that degree it's 
Like, it should be the least of your concerns about your earrings at that point. It's so funny because my seven-year-old daughter got her ears pierced this weekend, too. Oh, really? That's crazy. That's so awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it was just, she turned seven, it's her birthday on Monday. So it was just like one of her birthday presents she's been waiting for. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's like a lot of these things were, you know, they all kind of like, you know, come back to this food-like process and something that really, and when you talk to people, even like metabolic dysfunction, a lot of people start to tune you out because it just seems like this big, complex, scary thing that only doctors talk about. And, you know, people just aren't educated enough and like, you know, like what, what that is and, you know, how to be able to reverse it. So, you know, maybe can you jump in and just give a little brief on what metabolic dysfunction is and some of the ways to be able to help like curate a new path out of metabolic dysfunction? Well, it's, it's basically when things aren't working as they should because I think the body's been chronically confused for too long is sort of, a, you know, it, I don't know how, I don't know how else to explain it. I think that, you know, there are some genetic causes, obviously, um, but and like I, really we're kind of talking about like the flipping of the systems between like a, a ketone based derived energy source and a glucose based, you know, energy source, like being able to properly, you know, work through those two different systems and then our body being able to properly digest all of the, the nutrients that come along with it, no matter which system that you're in. Do you think that'd be an accurate uh, description? Um. I probably don't know enough about it from that perspective to say, but it sounds good. <laughs> and you know what I also feel like is I feel like there's a really strong connection between metabolic and autoimmune. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And so, yeah. and that is from my perspective, the body's confused is yeah. what it boils down to. And, and, and what you're saying is that the body's less resilient it's more rigid in its functioning. It's not easy. It doesn't easily adapt. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a lack of flexibility there. And um, I think those, I think those two things really go together. See, and this is where I find it to be very interesting with the carnivore diet, because like, this is some of like the, the main thrust with a, a meat only diet or a carnivore diet is that, it helps like correct a lot of these autoimmune issues. Um, And I don't know if that's because the literature that says that meat is absorbed higher up in the small intestine. So the, by the time that it travels to the bottom part of the small intestine through the digestive system, um, you know, into the colon, like all the, it's been broken down. So uh, we're right at the very beginning of this operation. So it mimics fasting like conditions uh, whether that we eat meat and it's typically higher in fat to be able to get the calories because just to be able to eat meat only, you'd be severely calorie deficient for the day. So you have to eat fattier choices of meat to be able to get your calorie intake that then you are predominantly leaning onto a more ketone-based system. However, we also know from a ketogenic diet that you can't eat too much meat because then through gluconeogenesis, you start to produce the carbohydrates and it bumps you out of ketosis. And 
So you do, you allow your body to produce the amount of carbohydrate that it needs, you know, but you're also predominantly on a lipid based system. So I don't know whether it creates a better interchange between those two processes. Um, and I think with the stigma behind, you know, a, a meat only diet, I don't know how long it would ever take to get some of those those actual tangible answers, like, you know, running those trials and studies, there's a lot of studies going on now, you know, with it because it's gaining so much more um, kind of like popularity, I guess, for lack of a better description, like more people are trying it or the people who are finding great success um, anecdotally are between uh, meat only, but with predominantly fruit to be able to gain access to, to nutrients and to carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and there seems to be something there because the one thing that I do know from working with people for so many years and uh, all this being completely anecdotal, that the more that people lean on a carbohydrate rich system and especially refined carbohydrates, it seems like those people have a lot more autoimmune issues and especially autoimmune issues that represent in the skin, you know, whether it be through psoriasis or acne or like any of the like rashes, like any of the different ways that you can, um, you know, like represent that way. And I actually didn't notice until a couple of weeks ago because um, I have tinea versicolor like on my skin, like I've had it for a long time. It's always represented, you know, on my left shoulder, you know, it's like my chest palate and I've always had to use the sulfur based, you know, system, you know, um, topicals to be able to get rid of it. It's something that I've just always had to deal with this summer when it always becomes pronounced because the rest of my skin is tan, except for these big patches on my shoulder. I realized that it was gone. This is the only year since in my early 20s, I haven't had it, but I've been consistently running a meat-based diet um, for almost two years now. And now this is the first time, and I may have not had it last summer either, just never really noticed. But this summer, just dawned on me, like I looked down and I was like, oh, I'm like, this is odd. I've, I've, I've had this for you know, 15 years actively all the time. And I've had to do treatments to be able to get rid of it. And I don't even know, looking back, I don't even know the last time I actually seen it on my body. Hmm. That's so, cool. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning with the meat-based diets that it's important where you get the meat from. So you don't want to just go to the grocery store and buy the standard factory farmed meat. No. Um, so two things about that. One is from an Ayurvedic standpoint, there are three different states of mind. There's a very active state. So when you're actively contemplating or thinking about something, there is a very calm and tranquil state where you're aware with clarity and not overly active. And then there's more of a logy brain fog state. And that's tamasic. And different foods encourage different states. And so with the meat, you especially want to make sure you're not getting all the hormones that they get, that they're pumping, you know, factory farmed animals with, because it can actually have an impact on your hormonal system. And it can create like high blood pressure and metabolic issues. Um, The other thing is that meat is classified 
is more, um, it can be more of like rajasic. And so like in India, it is encouraged for people who are in the armed services, work as policemen and security guards to have a diet high in meat Mm -hmm. because it, it makes them less peaceful and more alert and aware of what's going on around them. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not just about the smell and the taste that affect what happens to the humors of the body, but about how that particular food also affects the mind. And I think the really easy way to be able to bridge the gap between like concept and practical application and like what you're, what you previously just described is in how in Canada, uh, they can't use antibiotics, you know, in beef anymore because they found that obviously we are becoming antibiotic resistant because of that. You know, it's like, like that's the easiest way I think to be able to try Like it's, it's widely known now that, you know, antibiotics are banned in, you know, in beef and stuff in, in Canada, which is great. But that doesn't mean like what you said, that it's not uh, banned in all hormones. The one thing that I have found is that people who are going to run that meat-based diet system for longer, um, they nobody stays on that. The people I find who have the worst meat habits are the people who are on ketogenic diets, ironically. And oh, I don't know sure. why. Like it's all the bacons, it's all the sausages, because it is high in fat, right? Well, it's because the people that are selling you the diet want you to be on it because they're making more money off the products they're selling and their books. Yeah. And so go ahead and eat whatever you want. Yeah. You know, that's basically the message. Yeah. And I found that since I've been writing this system, it's one of the things that's pulled me back into hunting. You know, I've hunted my whole life. But actually making it a priority that my freezer is full of meat. Uh, it's like this weekend, you know, and it's connected me back with like a lot of my my cousins and my nephews that also had. So it's brought this good, like this family bonding, you know, back into it as well. Um, but like I routinely stop at the farm to get like, you know, all my eggs and stuff like farm fresh eggs. You know, I've sourced out my meat sources now that like I have my consistent meat source of you know, um, like grass finished meat. And I know, you know, and, and just people knowing, having conversations with all beef is, you know, um, grass fed and that kind of ed- people now in the education now that, you know, knowing that all beef is grass fed, but you want the grass finished, not because that's what they don't say. It's just because it's grass fed doesn't mean it's grass finished. And, you know, then that's typically where they're eating like all the corn products and, you know, like all that kind of stuff to be able to marvel up the meat. Um, so uh, that's the one thing that I have noticed, which I think is where people might also be seeing some more success on a, on a meat like diet or a meat predominant diet is because you get to this tipping point where you actually really understand meat and where it's coming from and people Mm -hmm. source out that meat, which has a lot more of a positive effect. And I noticed when people are on a, a more meat based diet too, they get into, you know, fishing and hunting and or just being around people who are doing those activities because they understand they need access to that because they don't want to eat like the, the chips and the popcorn and the candy of the meat industry, which is like all of the, the sausages and like the deli meats and all that kind of stuff that just, you know, are more carcinogenic, you know, than, or just carcinogenic as smoking cigarettes and stuff. But 
With this actually maybe is a good segue into what I was uh, one of the things because I actually haven't even asked any of the questions I'd have on my little list here. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I wanted to cover because it's this whole um, ethical argument behind eating meat. Um, and one of those out of the many different topics here now that I've opened up this can of worms is that the end, the negative energy that is then trapped in this meat um, from harvesting this meat and how it is killed, how it's prepared, just taking that life. Uh, but we also kind of do accept and acknowledge now that a lot of plants have the ability to be able to, you know, produce different chemicals and toxins when they can hear or, you know, how plants communicate with each other, knowing that a caterpillar is eating some leaves and they give out different, you know, like chemicals to make them displeasing to these things. So is that not the same process or am I grasping at straws wanting to find a correlation between those two things? Because to me, like what I'm starting to realize more now is biology is biology. And if we want to pick up one segment of that and saying that this one thing is more important than the other, um, what we know now, and I think a lot of this comes through all the research that's done, you know, through functional mushrooms and psychedelic mushrooms and just knowing that that network through the mycelium and the actual information superhighway that the mycelium creates for like all, you know, biological plant life, you know, in the forest and all around the world. Like, isn't, isn't everything intelligent or isn't everything have like this capacity, just some of them we may be able to personally associate with more than another mm -hmm. is there validity to that or what's I, your opinion my opinion is that everything is made of cheer prana and everything that's alive has a spiritual quality to it and and i also agree that we do relate to some things more than others so we're going to relate to other mammals and have more empathy toward them than some of the other things on the planet like plants or mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and we also don't, you know, so we have that empathy toward other creatures that look more like us or behave more like us, but obviously, um, unless you're probably Paul Stamets, you're not feeling that way about mushrooms or, uh, or other plant life. And um, it doesn't mean that those things don't also feel, we just don't understand the extent of it or how, or, I mean, it is a very philosophical question from an Eastern philosophy standpoint, everything is made of chi and there are um, teachings on eating meat versus not eating meat and um, all of that. So, you know, it's just how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? And how expansive do you want to be with your worldview? And oh, how I'll... are you willing to question? Yeah. So let me take you down a completely different rabbit hole that is along the same lines. I was having a conversation with somebody. If you actually, I ended up having multiple conversations with multiple different people about this. Um, we used to give back our biological bodies to the world, to the planet, to this biological sphere that we live on. But we don't anymore in multiple different ways. Like, you know, we either burn our bodies, you know, and put them in little jars or maybe spread those ashes, which is not really giving back anything to this planet. 
Um, or we, you know, encapsulate them in like these, you know, coffins, these chemicals, you know, things that don't really break down. Like we're, we're not, we're not giving ourselves back biologically to this biological world. What have we done? Do you think by to removing our biological energy from this world, not giving that back, not offering it back because we take so much as human beings. And we, at the one point in time where we can be selfless to this planet and give back our biological body to this biological sphere, we don't even do that. Like, what do you think we've taken away? Have we taken anything away? Like, it seems like we absolutely have based on the knowledge we possess now. What's your opinion on that? It's an interesting thought. It's making me think about mummification practices from thousands of years ago and and where it comes from that there's the urge to not reintegrate but was it like mummification only for like an elite class like it it wasn't widely done in regards to the population or was it i actually don't know anything about how widely i think um, you had to have a certain amount of money in order to be able to do it mm-hmm. And have it done well, just like going to, you know, you want to go to a good dentist or a bad dentist (laughs) and the good dentist is going to cost a lot more. So a lot of it was dependent on the class and, and how much money a person had, I'm sure. Yeah. And like, really, this is only kind of more like within the last, you know, maybe hundred, 150 years, because you have to think like, it wasn't very long ago when we were just put in a pine box. And like, that's like a best case scenario because you know that the wood's going to break down. You know that the person is going to break down. Like, like what we're talking about is a relatively. It's still the illusion of of separation from the earth. Yeah. But I just mean like at one point in time when we were buried in a pine box, like we would have the opportunity, you know, to break down after this box broke down and we would reintegrate back with this earth versus not. Um, But like now, like, I don't even know if a coffin actually breaks down like the, I I don't either. And then, you know, even if they do, like, what are we putting in back into the earth when people are just filled full of embalming fluids? I know it's pretty gross. I know. I just, cause you know, when, when you, when you challenge this concept on people, it's just like, well, well, no, but it's just like, but everything, if you look at just even the basic principles of like that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, it just transfers forms. Well, this is, we should be giving back that energy. And I, and I just think that it, it's extremely selfish of us knowing that everything else does give back, except for us. Like we've completely removed ourselves out of that when we're one of the species that are higher up on the numbers of just things that inhabit this. But obviously there's things that have billions of more like birds and these kind of things. But like when we look at the actual mass, that 7 billion people in this world that what that means and how we are never going to give that back and well most people anyway i i guess i'm kind of talking well, more like yeah. western cultures and stuff like yeah, that right, right. because there's so, some yeah the tibetans yeah. have yeah. charcoal browns and um there there's a movement now to turn your body into a tree or yeah i see that yeah a couple right, years yeah. ago that started yeah because yeah. like I say to me, like to me, the backcountry being in the mountains, like I just want my body to be taken into backcountry in a helicopter and just push me out the door and let me reintegrate back with this world. 
And like that, that would be like the perfect case scenario for me. Cause it's like, I feel like if we could have any impact on this world, on anything that we do while we're here, no matter, you know, whether you're mother Teresa or Stalin, you know, the one time that we could actually just give this thing back that we know is going to bring nutrients to the soil, something that could give back and have a positive effect. Um, I, I just personally think now that that is all of our responsibilities to be able to, to do that because it's the last final selfless act that we can do to further all biological life. Mm. So that's my, that's my rabbit hole there for something to, to think about. Um, one of the questions that I got on here, um, why, well, obviously maybe walk through the whole process with like the vagus nerve, the gut and the mind connection, but how does food create anxiety? Or like anxiety like symptoms. How does food create anxiety like symptoms? Well, I wouldn't blame the food. I mean, unless you're overdosing on caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um some people they eat, you know, like like processed sugars, like lots of candy, like things that are heavy oh, in the right, right, right. Diet, yeah, know, like processed. It's yeah, it's not it's confusing for the body to have to deal with that. It's and it's and it it also depends on the person's digestive capacity and how well they're able to break stuff down and eliminate toxins and how much confusion or damage there already is in the gut. Um, if it's someone that doesn't have a leaky gut scenario anywhere in their tract and and they're doing those things in moderation and you know their body's able to deal with it, that's one thing. It's it's when the body is not able to deal with it, that it might create anxiety because then it's saying there's something wrong here, mm-hmm. something I can't process or something I don't understand what to do with. Those are all, all very like anxiety producing messages, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say in the body, you know, it, it has its own language for how it communicates with us. When we're dreaming, it comes in through messages from the unconscious and the subconscious. And um, when we're awake, it comes in through other messages like anxiety, for example. So pain, those are all things that, you know, we have a tendency to want to like, just go away (laughs) when that stuff emerges. But really it's like the body's like, hello, I'm here. This is what I'm feeling. Can you figure it out and stop whatever it is you're doing or pay attention to this and, take action with that and we don't want to hear it yeah this brings me into this this question that always kind of booms in my mind is that we know that our model of how we are living our lives and especially when it comes down to food and nutrition is not sustainable how there's a million ways to be able to argue that point but i think no matter what no matter what position we come at it from we know that how we live our lives nutritionally is just not sustainable does evolution, do we biologically have the capacity to be able to catch up to that? Or like, what road does this lead us down? Because, you know, saying like here in Canada that they want to put warning labels on red meat, like red meat's the problem. You know how, you know, countries want to be able to start mass producing, you know, bugs to be able to increase protein content, you know, to get more into 
you know, monocrops in areas because plant-based diet is the way to go. None of this stuff is sustainable. And where does that leave us? Like, can, can we biologically catch up to the poor diet that a lot of people have, especially in Western culture now, oh, and actually produce like a tangible positive net effect? And obviously you just gave me your answer. Maybe, maybe some people can, but overall, I mean, I don't see how the body's really going to, the way it functions now, I don't see how it's going to be able to process chemicals in the water and in the air and plastics. And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I, it would be nice to see if that it could, but I think that's why so many people have some of the things going on that they do so uh, when we get into this now then interesting realm of like whether or not people want to believe that the world is slowly depopulating and over the next like one or two generations there'll be a massive populist decline and a lot of that being because of our baby boomer generation and because of like you know the world wars that ensued and when people started having kids in a relationship too that do you think that it would be better for us as people if there was maybe three or four million people or billion people on the planet versus seven billion people? Because it wouldn't take as much to be able to to keep these people alive and they could live better quality lives. Or do you think it lies more on the fact that with all the food that we produce in the world, over 50% of it gets wasted. You know, our energy sources, I think it's like 30 something percent of all of our energy gets wasted. You know, do you think it's because we don't have enough adequate resources or because we are so disassociated with how to be able to properly use the resources we have that I that's both. what things both. Mm-hmm. The food waste to me thing is, incredible knowing that about 50% or more of the food on this planet gets wasted every single day. Like that is an astonishing fact to me. You know, what else popped in my head when you were talking was um, one of the major arguments in, in global warming is that a huge amount of the methane that gets produced that's contributing to it is coming from the meat industry. But cow burps and farts and yeah yeah but think about how many people are on the planet doing the same thing yeah right it's not just the cows yeah well that's why i say it's like we've chosen to be able to like isolate these problems where they say like well you know we want to look at it that it's what some people may be doing but like you said it's like with all these people it's like think of all the extra clothes so that's manufacturing. Well, that's increasing a carbon footprint. The shipping, because we don't buy anything close. Um, the housing these people, whether they're properly housed or not, that creates that footprint. The food that has to be produced, whether people have enough to eat or not, that creates that footprint. Like you said, if there was three less billion people on this planet or two or one, like would that have the greatest impact? Because by that, that those same... Uh, industrial farming practices they would lessen because there's not as many people on the planet so like everything like you know 
where people say, well, we have enough actual physical space to be able to double or triple our population. It's just like, well, if we can't control any of these things now, what makes me think we can control these things in the future outside of even feeding people? But like, nope, almost everybody argues about what what is the best course and direction for people as a species to be able to take now. Could, could you imagine if there was 14 billion people on this planet? Like, that would be wild. Like the arguing that would be going on. And just think of the government controls that would have to then ensue. Because like, look what's happening in Canada. You know, like they're raging war on our farmers, just as like what they're doing in the Netherlands right now. And the one argument, you know, and obviously being a farmer, this is a sensitive subject to me, is that like farmers aren't the problem in like the fertilizers that they use enforcing them to cut the, the fertilizers down by 30%. Is using fertilizer in the soil good? Well, we need it to be able to grow our food, but should we be putting it in our soil? Let's separate that out of the argument. The argument being is that farmers are the most frugal people you will know, you'll ever meet. Like they have to be to be able to survive. To tell them that they need to cut that production down by 30%, well, they've already cut it down to the absolute most bare minimum, down to like trackers have GPS on them to make sure that every single pass doesn't overlap so that there's not a wasted grain there's not wasted fertilizer. There's not wasted any of these things. Like that's how far it's gone. So how do you eliminate that and still keep up with the food production? But yet in a place like Mexico, where you have the cartels taking over these avocado plantations and running all the rivers and streams dry because of how much water it takes to be able to grow these avocado plantations. It's like, why not focus on things like that? Like those are where the, the real detriments when it comes to farming. But again, picking on an industry that is already frugal and mm-hmm. is already, you know, cut their margins by like as much as they possibly can because it's already in their best interest to do so. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I don't, I don't understand. I have a, I have a really hard time. What, what's your thought process on that? I agree with you. It's tough. I said, this is where I guess all the, the, the conspiracy like theories kind of coming about like what's the point of all of this i just like i I just think people are flailing (laughs) basically i don't think that anyone really knows what to do yeah i agree with you there i think the one thing that we can all agree on is that nobody has the answers and what worries me now is the people who stick their hands up saying they do are like the last people that we should be talking to. And those are the ones to, right? that are elected to office. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. But I think just a little side note, one of the things that entertains me frequently is listening to Kamala Harris think that she can talk, especially candid speeches. Like, oh my gosh, it's so terrible listening to that woman talk. Outside of her being a woman, sorry, I shouldn't say person, whatever. It's just like, <laughs> But the way she stumbles through her speeches, like, especially when she knows that the wheels have come off the bus, like, it is just, it's so fun to watch. I can't watch stuff like that. (laughs) It's It's just just so funny. I'm like. (laughs) It's just so funny, though. It's like, it's like watching, like, a comedy skit, you know, like, on TV, just realizing this is one of the world's superpowers and, like, the vice president and the president literally could 
die anytime he's so old and this is the person who would be at the helm of like the whole thing it's just it's it's so interesting to me but yeah we yeah. don't have many good choices for some reason yeah 2024 is going to be interesting for uh for the United States, what do you do? You think Donald Trump's going to run again, or do you think the FBI is going to block it? We can go a little bit of political for a few minutes here and tell me what your uh-huh. perspective is. I think uh, many questionable characters will run. Many questionable. Do you think that um, Ron DeSantis is going to be the one to go head to head with Donald Trump, or? Um, that would be my first thought, but I haven't kept up on it enough to know what other creepers are lurking in the background. <laughs> Which the funny thing is like, there isn't. And I try to keep my, my finger to the pulse, like a little bit. I'm not a deep dive, uh-huh. you know, like us politics, you know, person, um, cause there's too much stuff politically happening in Canada. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of talk outside of like, you know, if Trump legally can run, you know, who's going to run against them? And like, where does Ron DeSantis play in all of this? Like, there's not a whole lot of other talk about anything else except for those two. And then, you know, whether or not that, you know, Biden's going to have the capacity to be able to run again, because he hasn't publicly come out and said that he's not going to. And there's the whole like, if he does run again, is that a shoe in to Kamala Harris getting into office in the second term? Because if she gets picked as VP again, you know, like, I don't think that, you know, Joe Biden can survive the second term. Like, he's barely surviving this one, but. Yeah, I don't know that the, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. It's going to be interesting. Same thing like with here, because like we just had a new leader of the conservative party um elected uh a couple of days ago i think it was on monday that the the voting was done um and he is the most popular political figure in canadian his- history um more people signed up in his campaign and the interesting about with the conservative party is you actually have to pay to be a part a conservative a voting conservative party member but for the ndp and the liberals you don't um, and he signed up more people to the Conservative Party in his run for being leader um, by like four or five X. Like it's been astonishingly high um, and converted a lot of provinces in Canada and a lot of writings over to Conservative from Liberal. So it's uh, it's an interesting time, you know, between our two countries, what's going to happen. Because our next election is supposed to be right after yours in, in 2025, unless something is triggered a little bit earlier. Um but again, too, it's like, I don't see like any of these two leaders or any of these potential leaders having any solutions to some of the more fundamental problems of our countries, like what we're talking about now, because everything we talked about today really is overarchingly a discussion about mental health. Really? Yeah. At the end of the day. Including this political discussion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. We're both going to go have to have a shower after ending this with political <laughs> conversation, but... Yeah. Um, is there anything you want to throw in at the end or if not, we'll wrap things up for today. I know that's good. Well, it was nice to see your face again after yeah. our hiatus over the yeah. summertime. Yeah. yeah. It'll be good to see you again next yeah. month. Get into our routine again. So thank yeah. you for coming on again today, Bridget. I'm really excited as always to be able to get into our discussions. Thank you for having me.